Trade Talks, bringing you the best of the buy side. So welcome back to the Trade Talks podcast. Again, we're joined by the lovely Hayley McDowell and Annabelle Smith. Welcome to the show, guys. How are you doing? Yeah. Hey, how's things? It's good. It's good. We've got an exciting show. We've got Corey Albert, head of cloud enterprise data at Bloomberg. He will be giving us an interview uh, later. So we'll be discussing cloud technology and why we are seeing a, such a big rise in adoption for that cloud technology. Then we're going to go over some news as per usual, and we're going to end the show with some people news. But guys, how did you enjoy this weekend? I mean, it's been a change of seasons here up in Manchester. How about it down south? How is it for you guys? It's really hot here. Blue skies. I mean, I think the the seasons have definitely changed this weekend. It's definitely feeling a lot colder, but it's all pretty sunny outside. Yeah, I feel like summer has well and truly come to an end, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I think autumn's a nice season and I'm looking forward to seeing the red leaves on the on the trees, to be honest. I love that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I'm going to have to disagree, guys. Take me back to summer. <laughs> short, <laughs> short sun t-shirts, that's, that's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I just want to start with uh, my first story. We'll go right into the news. So... First story I've been looking at is the FCA ends an investigation into an audio hack. Now, we've been seeing quite a bit of a rise in hacks during this uh, lockdown and working from home period. So it's an interesting one. So, yeah, the alleged audio feed hack was um, hacked by hedge funds at the Bank of England uh, last year. That's what they reported around December time, I believe. Now, according to the FCA, the audio feed was target, uh, targeted sorry, by traders so they could get early access to information before it was uh, available to the rest of the market uh, through the press conferences. So in the press conference uh, in December last year, the FCA said that the, uh, the internal press conference audio feed had been hacked by high-speed traders. So they went on to say that they didn't believe that the audio feed uh, contained any information that was uh, insider information. And they said that they didn't notice any activity of misconduct. Uh, so it didn't seem that anything was actually released, but they did kind of target the people who did use this feed and hack that feed. So they've closed the inquiry now and that they've, they've informed the bank and other parties connected to the review that the inquiry has been closed. But um, at the time, Bank of England claimed that the audio feed had been installed as a backup in case the video feed had failed. But it was made accessible to all the group of hedge funds by a third party supplier without the central bank's consent or knowledge. So basically, someone's hacked the audio feed and gave it to some hedge funds. But now uh, they believe that they were selling it between £2,500 to £5,000 per press conference. So did kind of add up. But um, now those who've been caught, they've been banned from all future press conferences. So yeah. It's a hacking story with a happy, happy ending. Not really much happened in it, but um, yeah, it, it seems like they, they really they closed that case off now. That was a really interesting story. I remember seeing it um, at the time uh, last year and it was just, you know, crazy to, to think that there were people sort of selling these subscriptions like to, to, um, to hacked audio feeds. And um, it's interesting <laughs> as well because, you know, this was literally to gain like, you know, microseconds of, of um, time um, in terms of early access to to that information from those press conferences, and you know, it just goes to show what um, how important that is in um, in our world. Um, but yeah, I really like that story. Um, strange that the FCA were like, yeah, no, there was nothing wrong with that. Don't worry about it. Um, 
we'll just close this now. <laughs> Blow it over. I mean, what's even more like kind of like the question mark for me is that these guys really just left a, a paper trail, which uh, was clearly followed, you know, selling out passes. Like they clearly did it in a way which was open and people, well, I'm guessing this is how they got caught from selling the, selling the subscription fees and not really covering, uh, you know, the paper trail. So, yeah. um, you know, not much sympathy for the hackers on that one. No, definitely not. What about you, Haley? What have you been um, looking at over the past couple of weeks? So I've got a couple of regulatory developments that I'm going to discuss. Um, So there was something from uh, the Dutch um, Authority for Financial Markets. Um, This is actually earlier this month. And um, the the regulator has basically called for um, huge changes to MIFID II's rules for fixed income and derivatives trading. They had conducted a huge study and found that basically the regulations focused on transparency was in fact counterproductive. Um, so we know that MIFID II, a big sort of aim of the, the rules and the regulations for, for MIFID II is around transparency. And I think, you know, early on before MIFID 2 was even introduced, it was it was quite common that, you know, fixed income market participants were were hugely concerned um, with the pre-trade transparency regime for for bond trading. There were people saying that it was going to be the end of, of bond trading as as we knew it kind of thing. I remember hearing um, back back in in the day, um, you know, that it, the rules would harm liquidity. Banks would be less willing to absorb risk. It's, it's quite an interesting um, development in itself. So anyway, the um, the Dutch regulator has basically called for sweeping changes. They want to permanently waive pre-trade transparency requirements for illiquid instruments. They want to remove the reference data requirements and ISINs for illiquid instruments. ISINs was another sort of crazy MIFID two topic for bond trading and, and derivatives, a big topic at the time. Uh, and they also want to expand certain requirements for SIs for OTC derivatives trading. So, um, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. I wonder if we'll see anything in terms of the the MIFID two review, um, which is obviously ongoing at the moment. Yeah, thought that was quite an interesting regulatory development earlier this month. And I'm going to just jump into to my next one because this is um, much more recent and uh, it's to do with the dreaded B word. Brexit has made, oh. um, <laughs> has reared its ugly head again. And of course, we are talking about clearing and UK CCPs have been granted finally equivalents by the European Commission um, once the Brexit transition period ends. Interestingly, though, this is temporary. So... In a sense, it's just sort of delaying the problem, I feel. We're going to be back to square one um, in 18 months' time. I think at the end of the day, the the decision had to be made. And uh, yeah, the Commission have said it's time limited. Uh, they want to ensure that market participants can reduce their exposure to UK CCPs um, within enough time. Uh, so yeah, that's that's been quite interesting from the European Commission and then even more recently, we had ESMA say that um, LCH, IceClear Europe and London Metal Exchange Clear are um, going to be recognised as third country CCPs in Europe. Again, once the Brexit transition period ends and also for that sort of 18 month period. So while they've got that, then, you know, those guys are going to be considered third country CCPs. So, yeah, I think it doesn't really end the discussion for uh, market participants. I wonder if we'll ever stop talking about Brexit and clearing. (laughs) It's been a conversation that we've all been having for a really long time now and another sort of regulatory development there in in the post-trade space. What about you, Annabelle? What have you been writing about uh, recently? 
Well, I've been covering some some pretty big stuff recently. So um, for those of you that don't know, the London Stock Exchange is obviously trying to acquire Refinitiv in a huge $27 billion takeover. Um, I think it was in July, the European Commission came back and said that there were concerns that that acquisition was going to dampen competition in trading and clearing. Um, And so what's going on at the moment is the London Stock Exchange is selling off its Borsa Italiana arm in an attempt to get the green light for that acquisition. Um, And so a lot of exchanges have been putting in bids um, and sort of going for the Borsa Italiana business. And it's become a bit of a a bidding war between um, operators like Deutsche Borsa, the Swiss Stock Exchange and then Euronext. Um, So I think it was this week that Euronext confirmed that it had entered into exclusive talks um, with the London Stock Exchange Group to acquire Borsa Italiana um, alongside bids from Deutsche Borsa and Six. Um, I think for the time being, there isn't a confirmed um, transaction in sight. They said if there was a deal that was going to come out of it, it would be cleared in the fourth quarter. And obviously it would be dependent upon um, requirements from both sides, any legal requirements, any regulatory bodies that they need to go through. I think um, if a deal did go through with Euronext, um, Euronext confirmed that the key businesses of Borsa Italiana would still be based in Milan and Rome. Um, The group's finance leadership would be located in Milan. They also said that um, direct regulatory oversight of Borsa Italiana um, would remain unchanged and would mean that Consob and Banca d'Italiana would continue to supervise its activities. So it's pretty exciting to see who's going to be taking that over soon. I think it's become a bit of a tug of war. But exciting things ahead. Let the games begin between these guys on on who's going to take home Borsa Italiana. And it goes to show, doesn't it, how important this, um, you know, mega um, deal for really is um you know this yeah. acquisition of refinitive is is a massive deal um and i think the fact that they're willing to um offload borsa italiana to um you know to alleviate those those competition concerns um says it says a lot um mm. and interestingly in terms of um the buyers you know euronext uh are <laughs> are well experienced in the um competition in terms of you know bids and counter bids for various acquisitions uh some of you may remember early last year when um there was a massive bidding war between Euronext and Nasdaq for uh, the Norwegian stock exchange Oslo Bourse and uh, Euronext eventually came out on top uh, on that one so um yeah we'll see if they can do the same again this time around yeah proven track record <laughs> it didn't begin so yeah I'll just go on to my second story now, this one is about StoneX launching its new outsourced trading platform to target emerging markets. Now, if you're thinking, I've never really heard that name StoneX, that's because they've done a recent uh, rebranding. They were formerly known as INTL FC Stone. So now they're known as StoneX. So that will just keep you up to date and into the picture. Now, we've actually been doing a documentary about outsourced trading and I've been speaking to some of the people at StoneX. So I'm not going to say too much, but I can tell you that they're working on some exciting things and you will have to go watch that documentary to find all those scoops. But uh, the new outsourced trading platform named Emerging Manager Platform, it's aimed at targeting emerging assets uh, managers, providing a service that combines uh, StoneX's execution service, including its multi-asset global connectivity and high-touch expertise, and middle and back-office support. So uh, the firm claims that the new emerging uh, manager platform will connect clients with buy-side traders and provide access to more than 150 global brokers, banks, and resource providers. Like I said, 
if you want more information about outsourced trading, uh, we have a few stories up on our news website. But I suggest you keep your eyes peeled for October when our documentary will be making appearance. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, my last story. And uh, Annabelle, do you have one more for us to cover? Yeah, I've got another one. So um, another thing that we covered, I think it was last week, um, was that Blue Creek Capital uh, management had automated its investment processes with SS&C's Easy Eclipse platform. Um, the, the equity fund manager has implemented it, and I think it's a, a full front-to-back office platform um, that will in, automate its investment processes for its China funds. Um, it's quite a big story because it sort of comes as part of a streak of wins for Easy Eclipse um, on the buy side. Um, they confirmed in a statement that they'd signed 27 fund managers in the APAC region alone in the last 12 months and that they were supporting 20 new fund launches. And they also confirmed, I think this announcement followed in August when hedge fund Bluecrest Capital Management confirmed it had installed their EMS execution management system. Um, and that was followed again by credit manager Barden Hill Investment Partners, who confirmed it had implemented the order management system from the easy software SS&C. So, yeah, it's a, a big streak of wins for them. It's exciting to see, you know, who's going to be next to, to onboard that. But they seem to be doing pretty well on the buy side. That's interesting as well that they're onboarding, you know, um, so many sort of new fund managers despite the whole, you know, pandemic thing that's, that's happening at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah interesting. I thought it was very interesting as well that they've onboarded so many in the APAC region. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that's all the news we've covering today, but stay with us because we've got Corey Albert, the head of cloud enterprise data at Bloomberg. He is on the line. Me and him are going to have a conversation about cloud technology and we're going to kind of find out why there's a rise in adoption. So stay with us. The Trade Talkers. Our guest now on the Trade Talks podcast is Corey Albert, Head of Cloud Enterprise Data at Bloomberg. Welcome to the show, Corey. How are you? Why, thanks. Thanks for having me. No problem. Now, Corey, I just want to start first things with what is enterprise data? Can you explain what that is to our audience? Enterprise data is a department at Bloomberg, um, and it sits out of our very popular terminal business, but complements it very well. Um, you know, our goal in enterprise data is to acquire normalize and distribute data, um, you know, any kind of data essentially that's needed for clients to trade a security. So that can include, you know, traditionally pricing and reference data, uh, corporate actions information, uh, research news, and as of late, even alternative data sets. Um, so we want to make sure that we make that data available via, you know, programmatic interfaces uh, suited for our customers' front, middle, and back office workflows. Now, what are the main use cases for the cloud and cloud technology for market participants? Yeah, I think the main use cases for cloud and cloud market participants, um, especially in the capital markets firms, um, are just acquiring and storing large amounts of data and building out their data lakes, um, traditional backtesting strategies, um, building out tick history repositories, um, you know, running on the more front office side, running some of the more compute heavy intensive um, calculations such as risk and volatilities. Um, but, you know, most recently what I'm kind of excited about is the start of some of the um, traditional capital markets ISVs starting to move towards um, a software as a service model. So, you know, late last year, we did a, a press release with a company called Murex that runs a you know, risk calculation engine out of, out of Europe. And, you know, they started to migrate their MX.3 platform to 
AWS and you know, leverage a lot of our real-time data sets. So I think as those types of traditional ISVs start to move to uh, cloud and taking the benefits of you know, software as a service um, or uh, microservice architectures, you're going to see a lot more adoption in the capital market space for, for cloud. And that's great you just mentioned adoption because we at The Trade, we cover a lot of news on cloud technology. Would you say that there have, you've seen an acceleration in buy and sell side adoption of cloud technology, or is this just another buzzword we're getting swinging around? No, I mean, I've been in my role for about uh, two years now, and the cloud adoption is, is definitely, it's definitely real. And the fact that our customers are also starting to take our real-time data sets uh, into the cloud is really an early indicator that you know, not just it's not just your workflows for your quants or your data scientists, but it's it's actually your trading workflows that are you know people are starting to look towards moving to the cloud. Now, what has fueled the increase in this adoption? Do you think the pandemic played a big part in this as the industry shifted to the remote working model? Yeah, I think there's you know I think there's a couple of, uh, reasons for you know the acceleration of this cloud adoption. Um, you know, I've been in the cloud, you know, I've been in the capital market space and financial technology for uh, the majority of my 18-year career. So I like to think of the capital markets industry as innovative, and you know, I see a lot of the mid-tier and larger firms um, across buy side and sell side really trying to you know reduce that innovation life cycle. Um, so allowing their data people and their technology people to you know to work together but providing those people with you know kind of definitive timelines for their projects and i think you know cloud technology in general um matches that time frame so your your, your technology budget uh, matches your you know delivery goals for those types of strategic projects i've also seen the need for you know smaller firms looking to provide disaster recovery environments i think it's been up even things like cold dr and you know the cloud is really conducive to that. You know, as far as COVID is concerned, um, yeah, I think it's definitely helped to accelerate cloud adoption. In the very early stages of the pandemic, um, I had one horror story of a you know kind of a startup firm in New York um, reaching out to me because their dev environment happened to actually be housed in you know servers that were located in a closet within their New York City office. So they called me up and said, "Oh, you know, Corey, what are we going to do? Are we going to be able to get into our office? Uh, what if we need new hardware?" And you know that spurred the transition to the cloud. Um, you know, I think most of our customers are you know probably in a bit more mature state, so are experiencing different challenges, but. You know, one one major theme is surely just a shift in how end users have been accessing applications. Um, so, for example, you know, choosing to run, run mobile versions of applications, and I think that shift, you know, really resulted in a kind of a transfer of capacity requirements across systems. So you had to just, you know scale up your your web servers and things of that nature when people start to go more mobile or web, and that you know that dynamically that that need that need to scale dynamically um, due to the due to the pandemic, I think you know really lended itself to cloud workloads for these types of applications. Tell us about this term hybrid cloud model. And who you, who's using the model and what are they using it for? You know, hybrid cloud essentially meaning that, you know, you're leveraging services from the public cloud while also maintaining, you know, your own private cloud often on-prem with, um, you know, with various cloud principles for, you know, scaling up compute and storage. Um, and as far as who's using it, honestly, I think, you know, I think everybody is using it. A common misconception across industries is that, you know, when, when firms take this cloud journey, they just have to migrate everything over. You know, I, I think 
today, you know, especially as you know, total cost of ownership is important, but innovation is equally as important. Um, I see a lot of our customers being very thoughtful in choosing which workloads they want to migrate to the cloud. And that results in these types of hybrid environments. Now I want to move on to risk. Is data more vulnerable on the cloud? Two years ago, um, I attended a reInvent session and every single conversation I had um, was, about, was about risk with our customers and, and managing the risk and managing data risk. Um, that surely diminished over the course of the, you know, of the course of those past two years. Um, you know, I'm not sure if it's because customers are, are less concerned about it with companies like FINRA or Bank of England, um, you know, kind of supporting cloud or, you know, or if it's just the fact that I'm dealing with a lot of market data and not a lot of private information that the conversations don't lend itself um, to those, you know, to those types of conversations. Um, you know, but in, in general, I think, you know, risk is, risk is very important. Um, I think ensuring that you have operations set up to, um, allow your data to be securely stored in the cloud is important, but it's just not an, it's just not as much of an overarching theme as it was um, a few years ago. Okay, that leads to my final question now. How can firms spot and protect their data from those risks you've just spoken about earlier? You know, one of the things that you have to do is encourage your people to protect, you know, customer data as well as company IP, and that has to be ingrained as part of your corporate culture. Um, you know, I think we do that really well here at Bloomberg, and I've heard other customers do it, you know, stories about other customers doing it really well through, you know, really targeted education. So it's, you know, encouraging your people to see things and, you know, alert appropriate people when those things happen. You know, I look at the cloud as a way to empower technologists. It, it gives you the ability to move data. It gives you the ability to analyze data, you know, but it's kind of goes down to that Spider-Man quote with, with great power becomes great responsibility. And if you educate your people and you provide them with um, dedicated contacts to alert when something happens, that can go a long way. You know, on the process side, I think a lot of our customers have set up cloud governance teams and processes. Um, and those teams have representation from, you know, real practitioners across the organization. And they talk about things like security and provisioning. And I think the, you know when, when these teams are able to go out there and review cloud projects, um, it forces teams to think about data security very early in the in the process. And when you do that kind of thing, coupled with you know having patterns for pen testing, for example, you know if you're going to make something available or accessible via the internet, you have a certain set of pen tests to you know to ensure that 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 process is secure. Um, I think that that goes a long way. Those processes in general, and and lastly, which I think something you know, sometimes people are so quick to jump to, you know, what are the tools that are available? Um, it is you know it is using a combination of open source and and commercial tools, um, and then just understanding you know within your project what tools are are best for you, you know, and, and define those when you're doing your design and doing your requirements. So you know, for example, um, when we move BPipe, which is our real-time consolidated market data feed, to to the cloud, you know, it's it's a real-time feed. We focus largely on network security because we weren't you know storing data at rest with there, so it just wasn't applicable. So it's really just understanding you know what tools are in place to um, best meet the goals of your actual technology that you're moving to the cloud. Well, thank you so much, Corey, for joining us on the Trade Talks podcast. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Who is where? People moves. So that was Corey Albert on the line with me earlier today. Uh, a big thanks to Corey for spending the time to give us the interview. It was a good listen. 
Now we're going to move on to that section, which is called People Moves. So I'm going to start with you, Annabelle. Who's been moving where? Well, um, a huge people move um, that we covered last week was the um, departure of the chief executive of City, uh, Michael Corbett, who has been with the company for 37 years. Um, he's uh, made his plan public to retire next year, um, and he will be succeeded by the institution's current CEO of Global Consumer Banking, Jane Fraser. She's been with City for 16 years. Um, she'll take over from Corbett as chief executive um, from February next year. Um, it's obviously a huge people move because, you know, Corbett's been with City for 37 years. He was first appointed uh, chief executive officer in 2012. Um, he's focused hugely on growing the bank's institutional and consumer banking franchises. Um, prior to his role as chief executive, Corbett was um, CEO of the Europe, the Middle East and the African businesses leading City's operations across the regions. Um, he's also served as chief executive of City's global wealth management division, and he was previously the head of global corporate and the global commercial bank. Um, so obviously it's sad to see him go. He's given, you know, City his all. But Jane Fraser, it's exciting to see what she'll do with the role. Um, she's obviously been at City for a very long time as well. Um, she's served um, in various senior, senior executive positions during her tenure at City, including CEO of the Latin America business, CEO of City's private bank. Um, she was also head of global strategy and mergers and acquisitions um, from 2007 to 2009 so it's exciting to see what she's going to do sad to see Corbett go but exciting to have Fraser in the role and I think it's exciting isn't it Annabelle the fact that she is um you know the first woman really to um take on this this kind of role in terms of being the CEO of such a, a massive um investment bank I think it's it's really exciting times and it's good to see hopefully we'll see more appointments like that um in the future yeah, totally agree. It's really great to see a woman in the role. Beautiful. And I've been uh, been looking at BMY Mellon. Now, they've snatched up a Goldman Sachs veteran, Robin Vince, and they've snatched him up to oversee its capital market business. Now, Vince has worked in various roles at Goldman Sachs, including chief risk officer and head of operations. He will now act as the vice chair and CEO of Global Markets Infrastructure at BMY Mellon. We'll have to oversee uh, the clearance and collateral management, treasury service, markets and perishing business. So BNY Mellon said that the creation of the role will help the bank to achieve its synergies across its four businesses, uh, business units in order to provide an increased uh, value to clients and deliver a more end-to-end -end solution. So Robin Vince, he's been at Goldman Sachs for the past 26 years, so he's a real veteran in the game, and he will start a new role on the 1st of October, so probably around the time you're listening to this podcast. Now, I'd like to stay with uh, Goldman Sachs because they have promoted two senior bankers to co-lead an investment banking business in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So this is all according to an internal memo which uh, the trade managed to get their hands on. Uh, now, in the memo, it said that Gonzalez Garcia and Anthony Gutman will jointly lead the firm's Europe, Middle Eastern and Africa service. They'll be working closely with the CEO of Goldman Sachs Bank Europe, Wolfgang Fink. Um, Garcia joined Goldman Sachs in 1999 and is currently the co-head of Latin America, uh, co-head of Global Natural Resources and head of investment banking in Latin America. So again, yeah, Gutman also a similar kind of 
path there. He joined in 2007 and is currently serving as a global head of investing banking services and co-head of UK investment banking. And what about you, Annabelle? Have you got one more people move for us? Yeah, we've got another really interesting people move, um, which was a BlackRock Aladdin specialist uh, moving over to IHS Market um, in the Financial Services Solutions Division in a newly created senior role. Um, so Zion Hilleli was at BlackRock for 20 years and he was instrumental in developing the asset manager's flagship Aladdin platform, which I'm sure everyone's heard of. Um, but he has departed to obviously join data and analytics provider IHS Market. Um, his new role will be managing director, head of operations, client support and services and transformation um, for its financial service solutions division. And it's a newly created role that they've made for him. Um, he spent 20 years with asset management heavyweight BlackRock, um, where he was managing director responsible for developing and leading uh, the post-trade businesses and capabilities of the firm's Aladdin platform. Um, at IHS Market, he's going to be overseeing the global operations and transformation of the financial services solutions business. Um, their financial services solutions business includes the various products that I'm sure everyone's aware of. Um, more sort of well known is the Thinkfolio platform, but there's also Clearpar, um, WSO, iLevel, uh, Debt Domain, EDM. Um, so exciting to see um, what he'll be doing there. Thanks very much, Annabelle, for just telling us about that little people move. Now I'm going to move away from people moves because I know there's been a lot of interesting stuff going on at the trade, a few releases. So I'm just going to give the floor to you, Haley, to tell us all about this news. Yes, that's right. Thanks, Kai. So uh, the Q3 edition of the trade magazine is now live and available to read online. So you can uh, access that at thetradenews.com. Uh, do check out our cover interview with um, the trading duo from Unigestion. Uh, it's a really interesting um, interview. They they talked about sort of transforming their their trading operations to uh, to multi asset trading, which was um, which was really interesting. So yeah, definitely check that out if you can. Um, also in this issue, we um, are including the um, Goldman Sachs interview, which was fantastic to to do. Um, Kaish, you, you came along with me, didn't you, to do some photography? Uh, so yeah. We, we caught up with um, Danny Mallinson, David Cornish, and um, Alex Harmon, and they um, they sort of you know explained a little bit about how the GSET uh, platform did during the um, intense sort of market volatility earlier this year, and um, they also discussed some of the bets that they're taking um, in terms of the the future um, and future execution trends. So that's really interesting. Um, and Kais, the the Goldman office is um, crazy cool, right? <laughs> It is lush. I mean, it's kind of like a, a Bond villain's lair, but oh my God, what the, the views they have, uh, the inside, it's really, it's really good. And, you know, uh, we had to go through a lot of security checks, you know, had to have our temperature scanned, our eyeballs uh, scanned and ID taken. So they seem that they're really prepared to get people back in the office. And uh, we did see a few people in the office, didn't we, Hayley? Yeah, there were a few people there. Um, and I think that was just prior to this sort of second wave that we're starting to see a little bit now. Um, but yeah, that's um, that's a really interesting um, interview. I suggest that you guys check that out in the magazine if you can. Um, we've also got a really interesting piece from um, Annabelle on retail investment and its impact on the institutional trading landscape. She speaks with some senior market participants on that trend there and uh, as always we are including our execution management system survey um, which has been 
really interesting, actually. It's, it's thrown up some interesting results this year. So um, basically, providers gained the highest overall average marks in history um, of, of the trades EMS survey. However, there were declines in product development, um, which kind of suggests that perhaps the buyer side are looking for more from their EMS providers in terms of innovation and new products. So um, definitely check that out and give that a read too uh, when you get a chance. So yes, EMS survey, want to definitely look and read. Hayley, also, Trade Tech, what's the news? What are we hearing? Yeah, so we have Trade Tech, the virtual event uh, coming up. So uh, we have obviously the, uh, the buy side day on the 19th. And then we've got uh, the day one of the conference on the 20th and then day two on the 21st of October. So really exciting. Um, we will certainly be tuning in and um, we hope to be sort of, you know, providing you guys with with coverage of those sessions um, as we always do. And yeah, really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a really interesting event. Um, I've been through the agenda and um, I'll also be moderating one of the sessions on um, data and data management. So be sure to tune in and um, yeah, really looking forward to it. Okay, guys, you heard it. So save the date, get ready for that virtual event. And again, thank you all at home for listening. Be sure to check out some of our other episodes. And if you want the latest news, just go and follow the website, www.tradenews.com. Thank you all for listening. Trade Talks, bringing you the best of the buy side.